All right, guys, we're going to continue our study uh, going through different Christmas carols. Uh, we've looked at Go Tell It on the Mountain. Uh, this, today we're going to look at um, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Let me ask you a question as we begin. What is the oldest thing you own? The oldest thing you own. Someone said something. What'd you say? Your dad? Did someone say that? <laughs> your bed? I was thinking about what, what the oldest thing I own is, and really two things came to mind. One is I have this rule, and they're both books, interestingly enough. But uh, one is this book. It was given to me by my father-in-law. It is, uh, it's called Abstract of Systematic Theology by James Pettigrew Boyce, who was the founder of uh, my seminary. And it was written in 1888, or published in 1888. And it's really old and frail, and it's really neat and cool to have. And uh, so I really enjoy that. The other thing that has a little bit more significance to me, my great-grandmother named Ruby Jones, um, who I actually got to know for a long part of my life. I think she died when I was probably about 15 years old, 16 years old. And um, before she died, she gave me her Bible, she, which she had in this little thing here. And um, it's pretty worn out, but it was, it was really precious to kind of go through. And she's got all kinds of notes written in it. And she's got in the front and the back written like when people were born and when people died. And um, she, there's even a slip of paper in here, um, uh, a prayer that she wanted us to pray for her even after she was dead. Um, and uh, I got the flower from her funeral still tucked in here, which is pretty neat. She's got newspaper articles clipped in here of uh, when her, one of her grandsons uh, died in a car crash, and uh, just a really precious gift to have. And um, you know, as I as I've contemplated these old things, and particularly this Bible, it reminds me that this faith that we believe in is not our own. It's a faith that's been passed down to us, passed down from generation to generation for thousands of years, and we all stand on the shoulders of those who've come before us. We stand on the shoulders of our parents who passed this faith on to us and our grandparents who passed it on to them. That this faith has been delivered to us. That there are those who have ran the race before us who are now in glory. And I think that matters and I think that's a big deal. And, and when we look at this, uh, this carol today, it's really interesting. This carol is the oldest song that this church has ever sung. And probably most churches ever sing is this carol. This carol was written sometime around 600 AD. All right, it's old. It was originally written, obviously, in Latin. Um, and it, it, it was a little different then. It's changed its form over the years. But this song must have some great truth in it to have lasted that long and stood that much of the test of time. It's probably my favorite carol uh, of all the Christmas carols, because I love how dark and ominous it is. Uh, it's written in a minor key, um, which most of the songs we sing are not written in minor keys, I don't think. But And so it has that real dark sound to it. And it really matches the words, I think, well, because this song really in its essence is dark, which really leads me to give you kind of a warning this morning that this is a uh, a little bit of a difficult sermon to preach um, as we think about the joyous time of Christmas um, but there are dark times in Christmas and dark times in our lives. And so, um, so let's dive in and look at it. But let's pray real quick. Father, this morning we come to you. And as we look at uh, this last carol, uh, or second to last carol, God, we pray that you, would, uh, God, that you would just teach us from it. That 
you would teach us from your word, you teach us from it, and God, that in this time we would just draw near to you, and that you would make much of it, and you would teach us. Father, help us to focus, and we love you in Jesus' name, all people said. O come, O come, Emmanuel begins like this. It says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you lived a few thousand years ago, uh, four 4,000 years ago that you lived in Jerusalem then, and it was just another normal day, and you were uh, in your home, maybe you're sweeping, handling the kids, doing whatever, when all of a sudden you begin to hear kind of this low roar, this grumble. Not knowing what it is, you look outside and, and see that there's no clouds, it's a sunny day, it's not a thunderstorm, what is that? And it begins to build, and the noise begins to build and build and build, and you don't really understand what it is until you hear the scream of a woman and the clashing of swords. And then you all of a sudden realize that you are being invaded. And so you probably rush into the house and grab your children and and hide them under the bed. And you get under the bed hoping to to be spared, hoping not to be caught. When you realize that your door's been kicked in. And there stands uh, a soldier, sword in hand, blood dripping. And he begins to turn over everything, searching the house for people. And then he spots you under the bed, throws the bed out of the way, grabs you and grabs your children. And you think, oh, this is it. This is the end. When all of a sudden you're thrown out into the street, tied to a rope and marched. You're told to walk. You don't know what's going to happen to you, but you're still walking. And as you get to the edge of town, you look up and you see The temple, the place where God lived, where you connected with God, was on fire and was rubble. And you're told to keep marching until you find yourself in Babylon, where you are told you will live the rest of your days, that you will forget about where you came from, you'll forget your people, you will forget your God, you will forget your temple, and you will be Babylonian. See, this happened in 587 BC when Israel was destroyed by Babylon and sent into exile from their home. And so here, Israel, who are the people of God, are separated from their homes, forced to live in this foreign land. Their temple is destroyed, and that's significant, right? Because that's the only way they get to know God. They had to go into the temple to meet God, and the temple is gone. And so they're cut off, separated from God. And it appears as though God had abandoned them, right? Which is, which is difficult for them because they know that God has made all these promises to them. They know that God has promised that they would have this land forever, that, God, that they would have a king in the line of David who would sit on this throne forever, that God would come and vanquish evil, that God would never abandon them, that he would save the whole world through them. It's hard for them because they had experienced times of great blessing where they were defeating their enemies, where they were prospering and thriving. But now it seems as though God himself has either been defeated or has given up on his people. You see, they are in exile. They're cut off. The line from the song rings true when it says, Captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. Have you ever felt cut off? Have you ever felt a place where your prayers, you didn't feel like your prayers were getting past the ceiling, where you felt cut off and alone, that you felt helpless? 
there was this particular day when we were in North Carolina visiting my family for my sister's wedding and the whole family was in town, right? Like everybody's there and, and uh, we all wanted to get some cookout. And if you don't know about cookout, it's not what you do at your house. It's a restaurant in North Carolina that's going to spread and you can get a whole meal for $5 and it's good. Chicken nuggets you can get as a side, all right? It's a special place. And we wanted to go to cookout, so we got everybody's order, wrote them all down, and all the kids were out in the front yard playing. And as me and my cousin-in-law left, we said, hey, to our wives, hey, the kids are in the front yard, make sure you watch them. And so we go get in the car and we leave. Unbeknownst to us, all of what is happening while we are gone, but that there's a little dog named Bella that my mom has that began to wander off into the woods. And Scarlett, who is my three-year-old, who was then two years old, and her cousin, who was the same age, these two little two-year-olds, go and follow Bella off into the woods. Oh, oh and you know, they're just walking, going off. And my mom and dad live in the middle of nowhere in these woods. And there's creeks and swamps and coyotes, you know, all around. And they can't find them. They're gone. They have no idea where they went. They're searching the house. They can't find them. And so now everyone in our family is, scat- except for me and my Cousin-in-law, Nick, we're getting cookout, right? And no one lets me know this is happening. But they are, they're on golf carts, riding up and down the road, making sure they haven't made it up to the street. They're running through the, through the, through the woods, running down to the creek, screaming, Scarlet, Scarlet, Charlie, come here. You know, they're screaming, they're looking. And for an hour, they couldn't find them. Couldn't find them. Imagine a mother's heart freaking out. And I walk back in like, hey, we got cookout. And they're just looking at us, you know, (laughs) like what happened? That's what it's like. That's what it feels like to be in exile where you feel hopeless, where you feel like it doesn't matter how hard you work, how hard you yell, how far you run. No one hears you. You're cut off. God doesn't hear you. You're disconnected. You feel like no one's listening to your prayers that you've been cut off. You see, you and I, we may not be in a physical Babylonian exile, but we, like the song says, often mourn in lonely exile here. You see, our state right now is so similar to Israel's in this time, right? Where where they were, at this point, in darkness, trying to remember the promises of God and, and believe that even though things are bad right now, that God was going to keep his promise. They're trying to remember that in this land that's not their home. And that's so similar to us, right? That's so similar to us because this is not our home. America does not own our citizenship. We are foreigners and aliens. We are illegal immigrants here. This is not where we belong. Our citizenship is in heaven. It is in a kingdom of Christ that is coming. Not in this place. This is not our place. This is not our home. We are in exile, so to speak. It's like Augustine said, we live in the city of man while our citizenship is in the city of God. We are foreigners and outcasts here. And so just like Israel, we are standing here trying to trust in the promises of God that he's coming back, that Jesus is going to return and set all things right. While yet we sit here and while we're in this place that's not our home, it's tough sometimes. It is really difficult sometimes living here in this place. Even in the greatest country on earth, it is difficult. And sometimes we feel cut off from God. 
Sometimes we feel abandoned by God in hard times. And sometimes we try to remember that he, his promises are true. And we forget sometimes that this place is not our home. You see, what I want us to look at this morning is this feeling of exile that we get. And there's really two things this song shows us that make us feel like we are in exile, like we're in a desert, like we are all alone by ourselves and that God has abandoned us. You see, two things that really do that, make us feel in spiritual exile. And the first, both of them are the same as Israel. The first is our sin. You see, the reason Israel was in real physical exile was because they had a sin problem. They needed rescuing, not just from their Babylonian captors, but from themselves, from their hardened hearts, from their rebellion, from their sin. Here are the lines of the song. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. And the next verse that says, O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. What a good line. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave. You see, Israel is captive, and they are more than just captives in Babylon. They're captives of their own idolatry. They are under the tyranny and reign of Satan. He is their master, and because of that, hell and death are coming for them. You know, I don't know what it, what it is about Israel, but in the Old Testament, it's almost like every other page you get to, they're worshiping some golden calf or some Asheroth pole or some other God statue. It's like, why can't you guys wake up and get this? You're not supposed to do that, right? Like when they've, um, they've seen God part oceans, make water come from a rock, like rain bread from heaven, stop rivers. They've seen God do amazing things for them. And yet they're like, hey, let's build this, let's build this golden calf and worship it. This seems like a great idea. Like, what are you thinking? Like, what is it about that? We, we look at this in the Bible and we're so confused. Why do they forsake God again and again and again? It's the reason they're in exile. Their sin has separated them from God, and so God is displaying for them physically what is true of them spiritually. So that worshiping these false gods and these false idols is such a foreign concept to us. It's so weird, but that's interesting because you and I actually do this every single day. You see, we are not unlike Israel. We may not call them Baal or Ashtaroth or Ra. We may not have little statues in our house that we bow down and worship to. Oh, but we worship idols. Martin Luther said that the, the, the great Protestant reformer said that anytime we break any sin, anytime we commit any sin, we first break the first commandment, which is you shall have no other gods before me. You see, our hearts are drawn. Our hearts deceive us. I love it when people say, follow your heart. You know, just follow your heart. The Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Don't follow your heart. Because you know where your heart leads you? Away from the promises and trusting in God to satisfy you, to lead you to other things. To look to money as security. That if I, if I just have enough money in my savings account or checking account, if I just have enough in my 401k, I'll feel safe. I'll be okay. Right, right. We, we look to having kids. If I can only have kids, if I can only have a husband or a wife, if I can only get married then, oh, then I'll be complete. Then I'll be happy. And our hearts long for this so much. We think if we get it, we'll finally be complete. 
We look for fun and toys and we think that they'll complete us. We look at our careers and we think that if I could just get that promotion, just get that raise, if I could just have a little bit of respect, oh, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be complete. So ask yourself this question because every one of us in this room do it. What is it the thing that your heart says, oh man, if I just had that thing, Man, if I could just get that, all I long for it. If I could just have it, I would be happy. And what you need to realize, whatever the answer is to that question, your heart is saying, if I have that, I'll be saved. If I have that, I'll be complete. If I have that, it's become your God. Because your heart's saying it'll save you, it'll complete you, it'll make you new. Things that only God can do. And the problem is that things aren't bad. It's not wrong or bad to want kids to have a marriage, to have a great career. It's not bad to be rich. But when you think it'll complete you, it is. Do you know what happens when you get the thing that you think you so desperately want and you realize that it doesn't actually satisfy? You need more and more and more and you realize it doesn't satisfy. You need more and more and you realize it doesn't satisfy. That you look to it again and again and it lets you down. It fails you again and again. You finally ultimately get to this place like Israel does in exile, when you realize, oh, these things won't satisfy me, only God will. But then you try to return to God and you feel like you are so far gone. You feel so guilty and so full of shame that it hits you like a ton of bricks and this weight of sin and guilt lays on you and you don't know how to get out from under it. You don't know what to do. You feel like you're in exile and you didn't realize how far you strayed. Every one of us in this room who are followers of Jesus have experienced the overwhelming weight of guilt and shame in our life. Man, like, like, and you've experienced even on an individual level with other people, right? Like when you have wronged somebody, you've done something and, and you've gotten caught or you've gotten called out and you just feel terrible. You know what you did was wrong. You're like, I can't believe I said that to my wife. What was I thinking, you idiot? Right, you do this or that and you feel so guilty. You blew up on her, you, you did whatever. You come groveling, I'm so sorry, right? And she's not having any of it. No, 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 no. And, you're, and you are at her mercy and you're trying to plead and say you're sorry and forgiveness. And, and whoever it is is just not having it. And you feel so desperate and so helpless. You feel so helpless to, to fix the problem and you're groveling and you can't make up for it. You want to be restored, but it's out of your hands and it literally makes you sick to your stomach. You feel like you're in exile. When I was a youth pastor, there was, uh, I had this youth who came to me and, and, and she was, she comes and she's like, Brent, I've got to tell you something. I'm like, okay. And she's like, but I, I can't tell you. I'm like, well, we, we're going to, what do you want me to do? You know, and, and, and so for the next hour, I began to try to pull this thing out of her. And she goes, Brent, you don't understand. If my parents find out, they will disown me. I'm like, that's not true. That's not true. They love you. They're for you. That's not going to happen. I'll, you know, I'll go and I'll talk with them, whatever. She goes, Brent, you can't tell anybody all this. Brent, you, she goes, you will never look at me the same. And I looked at her and, and I said, try not to say her name. We'll just call her Amy. I said, Amy, I already think you're a terrible, horrible person. And you just like to hide it. I think that about everybody, even myself. We're just all good at hiding our mistakes. Nothing you can say is going to surprise me. Nothing you can say is going to surprise me. I probably already assume you're doing it. 
And finally she tells me, and it's like this weight's been lifted. But she had been for so long because of the things she was uh, getting herself into that she knew she shouldn't have done. This weight of guilt and shame so pressed on her that she felt alienated from her parents. She thought they would disown her, that they wouldn't love her anymore. She thought God didn't love her. God could not forgive her because of what she'd done. She felt so shameful and guilt-ridden. It was weighing on her, and you guys know exactly what that feels like. And we feel the same with God that, 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 that he couldn't forgive us, that he couldn't make up for us, that we're too far gone, that God has abandoned us, and we're in exile. We mourn in lonely exile here. That becomes all too real to us because we mourn, and it seems like there's no way home. It's the reason we begin to think in those times, especially at the first of the year, right? I'm going to clean my life up. I'm going to fix it. I'm going I'm to fix everything. I'm going I'm to straighten my life out. I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to do this, that, and then the other. And everything's going to be okay. And, and you, but you've got to realize you can never make up for it. You came by grace. Why do you think you can keep going by your works? You can never do enough to fix this separation that you have with God. Your self-righteous attempts to fix it will never work. Rather, you will remain stuck under the weight of guilt and shame. And you remain in the self-posed spiritual exile from God. So the first thing that puts us in exile is the guilt of our sin. But the second thing is living in darkness. You see, the, this third verse says, O come thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. I don't know how it originated, but somewhere in history, someone uh, first said and described a personal tragedy as the dark night of the soul. You know what I'm talking about? Most of us in this room who are, you know, more than 10 years old have probably experienced some dark night of the soul. <clears throat> some of you have children who have made poor decisions and it just breaks your heart. Some of you are struggling with infertility or have for years and it just weighs on you. There are some of you, you've seen people go through terrible accidents. You've had friends betray you. You've, had, you've seen loved ones get horrible sicknesses and diseases. You've seen war and having to send your children off to war or your husband off to war. You've lost loved ones. Uh, they've died. You know what it means to have the dark night of the soul. You know what it means to live in a world of gloomy darkness. When I was interviewing here, one of the things that the search committee told me was how there have been these tragedies in the community where kids would get in car wrecks and die and how the funerals would be held here and we got to love on the community. But you guys know what it means for people and for yourself to have dark and gloomy days that seem like there's no way out. You know, for my family, I think the darkest night for, for my family in particular was a week after my wedding. We got married in June, went on our honeymoon came back and we were at my cousin's house playing board games one night and I get a phone call from my mom. She begins to tell me this story where my sister was up in Nebraska with her boyfriend, soon to be fiance and with their whole family and they were out on the lake and they were 4th of July weekend and they were in this little cove by themselves and pulling the tube and, you know, trying to, you know, throw everybody off and have a good time and 4th uh, of July weekend was great. So while they were riding, this drunk guy on another boat came out of nowhere and hit the tube that my sister's boyfriend and little brother were on, just out of nowhere. And they were looking, and 
there they are floating in the water, and they jump out to go get him and pull him in, and the little boy Josh, who's like 12 years old, he's dead like that. And then Matt, he still has a pulse, and they, there's blood everywhere. And my sister's doing CPR in the boat. They call in a helicopter, lifelike this guy to the hospital nearby, and for the next couple of days, they're praying and praying and praying, and they eventually pull the plug, and he's gone too. That's the dark night of the soul. Like as a mom, as a dad, how do you, how do you walk through that? I could barely walk through it. I can't imagine it being mine. I never knew what it was like to love a kid until I had some, and I can't imagine walking through that. I don't think I could. And so how does this mom, how does this dad, how do they walk through losing two kids like that? where everything was going right, everything was going good, and all of a sudden, they're gone. This world is not our home. We're aliens here because the world was never supposed to be this way. This is not the way God created the world to be. Where parents lose children, where we experience gloomy nights of darkness, the dark night of the soul, as every one of us in this room, we are either in the, in the middle of some storm or walking out of some storm or getting ready to walk into one. And it's like it's never ending. It's again and again and again. And it's like, God, when is it going to stop? And when these things happen, we look, God, where were you? Why did you abandon us? Why did you let this happen? I thought you were good. Why? And we don't know how to, how to think through it. We don't know how to, how to understand. And we just feel in exile. We feel alone. We don't know what to do. And it's hard for us in those times to remember that God is good, that he's coming back. Because all we think is that he's not, he wasn't here for us. He wasn't here when I needed him. See, when, whew, we walk through pain and suffering. We walk through the dark night of the soul when it feels like exile. When it feels like God has abandoned us. When there seems to be no good answers. When there seems to only be silence. When the gloomy clouds of night in the world seem to take over. And we can't remember the promises of God. What do we do? How do we cope? What do we, how do we do that? Did you know the number one reason people don't believe in God is because they say, how could a loving God love, how could a loving God allow this tragedy to happen in my life? How could a God who is supposedly good allow this thing to happen? And I get it because it does sure sometimes look like evil is going to win the day. It does sometimes look like evil is going to have the last word. Like Satan will continue to reign and death will reign and will forever be cut off from God in exile and that'll be the end of it. And that there's no hope. Our sin makes us feel like an exile. Our, our, the darkness we live in in this world makes us feel like an exile. It's hard to trust that God's going to come back. It's hard to trust his promises. And so what do we do? This song has a simple answer. The chorus that we come back to again and again and again. It says, rejoice, rejoice. Like Paul, when he said, rejoice, again, I will tell you, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. 
Emmanuel shall come. God with us shall come to his people. When it's the days are dark, remember he will come. It reminds me of my my favorite book in Narnia, where it had been for a hundred years winter but never Christmas. Where this white witch had been reigning in Narnia and everyone lived in hiding and fear until these four children showed up through a wardrobe and the snow begins to melt. And there begins to be this murmur, this whisper, that Aslan's on the move. That the lion, the great lion who could defeat the witch was coming. And the snow begins to melt. It reminds me of that because Jesus is on the move. Because Jesus has come and he's coming. The story of Christmas is that the Son of God is coming. The long-awaited one who can reverse the curse of this world is coming to do battle with Satan and to defeat him forever and set the world right. He's coming to deliver us out of exile. He is coming to be our ransom, to ransom captive Israel. He has come to be, not just pay the price for our ransom, but to be the price for our ransom. He has come to literally die, to literally go into exile himself, to be exiled from God so that we might come in. He came to literally lay down his life so that our sin debt could be paid in full. And do you know what it means that Jesus died on the cross for you? Like, do you know what it means, not just for you to get saved, but 50 years of following Jesus, do you know what it means that Jesus died on the cross for you? It means on your worst days when you screw up again and again and again, you don't go into exile. You never get exile. You don't get cut off. Because Jesus was cut off for you. And so when you live in this state of shame and guilt for what you've done in your past or what you did yesterday or what you did this morning fighting with your spouse on the way to church, you don't feel the shame and guilt of that. And when you do, it's because you're not believing the gospel. It's because you're not trusting in what Jesus has done for you. You're not rightly applying the gospel to your life because the gospel says that your sin has was put and nailed on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago and it's gone. All of it's gone. And yet when we feel this shame and guilt weighing down on us, it is because we're not believing that message. You don't have to feel shame and guilt anymore, brothers and sisters. You don't have to feel it. You just got to believe what's true of you, that God has made you righteous. Not because you are, but because his grace is sufficient for you. His blood is enough. See, when you are in Christ, there is no such thing as exile anymore. You see, sometimes in our life we think when things are going well, we look at ourselves and we think, man, I'm going pretty well. I probably shouldn't think so highly of myself. And the other times where we're beating ourselves up because we've messed up again and again and again. And, and we think, I've got to think better of myself. I've got to do better. And the problem is you don't need to look higher or lower at yourself. You've got to stop looking at yourself and stop, start looking to Jesus. Stop judging your relationship with God on your performance this week. And start judging your relationship with God based on Christ's performance for you. 
You stand on his merit alone, not yours. You entered by grace. You continue by grace. That's not all. Do you know why it's so easy to blame God in the middle of our pain and suffering? Why it's so easy to say, God, how could you let these bad things happen? I thought you were good. It's so easy because we forget what it means that Jesus is our Emmanuel. We forget what it means because Jesus has literally entered history. He's literally entered our stories. That means that he knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it means to have his friends betray him. He knows what it means to be falsely accused. He knows what it means to have a best friend to get sick and die. He knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it means to be brutally murdered. Jesus knows what it means to suffer. And so in the midst of your suffering, guys, hear me. In the midst of your suffering, God is not indifferent toward it. He is not aloof toward it. He is intimately acquainted with it. He gets it because he's experienced it himself. He's experienced it himself. It's not indifferent toward your pain. So as we stand here living in the world that we don't belong in, suffering, how do we trust God on the dark night of the soul? We remember that he is Emmanuel and that he's coming again. You see, you can know that God has not abandoned you on the dark night of the soul. On the, dark, on the days of gloomy darkness, you can know that God has not abandoned you. Because on the cross, he suffered and was cut off. On the cross, he went through literally hell. And if he did not give up on you at that moment, he's not going to give up on you in this moment when you doubt his goodness. In this moment when you fail again, he's not going to abandon you or forsake you. Because on the cross, with outstretched arms, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, God forsaked his son so that he would never have to forsake you. God turned his back on his son on the cross so that he would never turn his back on you. No matter what difficulty you face, no matter what darkness you face, no matter what doubts you have, he'll never abandon you and turn, your, turn his back on you. In the middle of your darkest days, you can rejoice because God has indeed come for his people. And though we stand in darkness now, our hope, guys, is that he's coming again. And hear me, God is not coming again just to take you up to heaven and say, well, forget this world. It got screwed up. Let's just go up here. No, he's going to make all sad things come untrue. He is going to literally reverse all of the pain, all of the suffering, all the dark nights of the soul so that he walks up to our graves when we've trusted in Christ and say, live. The husbands that you've buried, the children that you've buried, will live again, not in heaven, right here. He's going to set it all right and make it all new. We can know that. We can know it. He's our Emmanuel. He's entered our story. He will set the world right. You see, sometimes it's hard to trust God in the darkness. There was this time where Scarlett was like one years old, and she fell somehow, and somehow she bit her lip in such a way that the inside of her gum was literally shoved up between her two front teeth. And I'm like, I, 
trying to rip it out. And I'm like, I can't do that. You know, trying to pull it down and out. And I'm like, and she's just blood and so much pain. And so we go to the emergency room. And the doctor's looking at it. And the doctor's like, I've never seen anything like this. How did you do this? I don't know. That's scarlet for you. And so what we had to do was literally put a pillowcase around her entire body. And, and, and nurses and me holding her down, her mom holding her legs down, or holding that down, and put one across her forehead to hold her face still because she was in such pain. And so she didn't want us to touch it. And we're holding her down as she is screaming and writhing so that the doctor can get in there and fix the problem. And she's like, in that moment, you know through her mind, she's like, Dad, what are you doing to me? Why would you let this happen? Why would you hurt me like this? But what she didn't realize was my heart for her to make her better. That she had to experience some pain so that she could be better, so that her lip didn't mess her teeth up. See, in the midst of darkness, when you don't see the hand of God, you can trust his heart. When he seems silent and you don't know why he's letting happen what is happening, you can trust his heart. Because he gave his life for you. He went through hell for you. And if he did that, you can trust him now. He's going to come back. And he is making all things good and all things right. And though there's some darkness now, and when we're in it, he understands because he's been in it himself. So we can trust him. We can trust him. We can trust that Jesus is on the move. He's coming again, and when he does... It won't be always winter, never Christmas. Instead, it'll always be Christmas even when it's not winter. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. And God, we just know that there is so much darkness in this world, so much pain and difficulty in this world. And God, we just, I just know there's so many people in this room who have walked through it in the past or are walking through it now on different levels. But for them, it is the dark night of the soul. Father, I pray this morning you give them great comfort and peace because you know what it's like to suffer and you are coming to set all things right. And Father, I pray for the one in this room right now, God, that doesn't know you, doesn't trust you, and has no hope. I pray that you would show them that Christ was cut off so that they could be brought in. That they would come and bow their knees to Christ as Lord and, and, and be forever changed. And for the one in this room, God, that feels this weight of guilt and shame for years of sin in their past, and they can't get past it, they just feel the guilt, and it's never leaving, never going away. God, help them to believe the gospel is true of them. When they put their faith in Christ, that the gospel is true, the weight of guilt and shame is gone. Guys, wherever you're at this morning, I want you to know the deacons are here. I'm going to be up here at the front. I would love to just pray for you. If you have any of, any of this that's going on in your life, anything like this or whatever, I would love to pray for you. Just hug your neck. If you want to come and pray at these steps and just get on your knees before the Lord, just to ask him for help, just to be near to him, I want to invite you to do that. You just need to stand there and, and just sing. I want to invite you to do that. However, the Spirit will prompt you to respond. If you want to know what it means to follow Jesus, I would love to share that with you. Let me pray for you for anything. I'd love to pray for you. But respond as the Spirit would lead you. God, give us the strength to trust you and follow you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and sing together.
I promise I don't always cry. I told myself I wasn't going to cry. Um, 
But I love you guys. Appreciate you being here. Help us set up the chairs for Upward if you got a minute. If you're a guest, uh, just so honored and glad to have you this morning. I'm going to be standing in the back of these doors. Love to just meet you real quick, get to know your name real quick. We have a gift for you. Love to give you real quick, and um, we'll be out of here. Love you guys. Peace be with you.